today we're going to talk about the fact that Jesus has prayed for you. He has prayed for you. And I want you to think about that for just a second. And just even put it in the first person. Jesus has prayed for me. And we're going to talk about that prayer um, in his somewhat less than infinite wisdom. And Jim's given me an absolutely astonishing amount of text to preach today. Uh, so we have, to, we have to blaze through a lot of things. And as I sat and as we worshiped this morning, as I listened, um, there should be a phrase for this, like hindsight preaching is twenty twenty. I don't know what it is. But I thought of all the things that I would really like to say to you that aren't in the sermon. And I'm, I'm hoping that Jesus will make it so that you hear all the things you need to hear today, especially. So uh, the passage is John chapter 17. And my goal today is, if possible, to make you better able to hear, receive, and accept Jesus' prayer for you. But I think a large part of my work for this will be giving you context for what this prayer means and why it's there and what's happening. So we're going to talk about the temple, and then we're going to have to talk about the Old Testament a little bit. So first, a crash course in the temple. This should be fun. In, in many ways, the story of John's gospel is the story of a temple. That is the story. And let's, let's just highlight a few passages to get this clear first. So John 1.1, we'll put that up on the screen. John one. There we go. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Uh, when John wrote his gospel, it seems that he is consciously echoing the opening of the book of Genesis. In the beginning, God created. In the beginning was the Word. And John is retelling the story of the world, but he's putting the Word, Jesus, at the center of the story. He's reframing creation around the person of Jesus. We get to John chapter 1 and verse 14, and it says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is an astonishing phrase to Greek hearers. The word, the logos, is the principle of reason that governs. It's the governing principle behind the universe. And we're saying it became flesh. It took on human meat. It, it became incarnated in this way. And then it says, and it dwelt among us. And buried in that word dwelt in Greek, um, a better translation might be it tabernacled. It took up a tent and lived among us. And that word tabernacle in the Greek echoes um, the language of the tabernacle that housed God's presence with the Israelites when they wandered in Egypt. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And so we're already nodding towards what's the purpose of this person, Jesus, walking towards us, living with us as Israel lived in the wilderness with God's presence dwelling in the tabernacle. And then in chapter 2, we get to this business of the cleansing of the temple. We'll look at that text in a moment, not the whole text. It's a famous event. Cleansing of the temple, a major event in Jesus' life, um, and the other three Gospels put it at the end. In fact, it's a kind of trigger event. Jesus cleanses the temple. It makes the religious authorities mad, and this is one of the reasons they have him crucified, because he cleansed the temple. But John puts it at chapter 2. It's the first thing Jesus does, basically, after the wedding at Cana shows up at the temple. Now, there's a number of explanations for why people think he did this. Uh, some people think there may have been two cleansings. Jesus was really about cleansing the temple. So John records the early one, and the other Gospels get the later one. Um, other people think John's just confused. He doesn't know what he's doing. Um, I think that's probably wrong. Um, I, the, the, the best, we can, there's other, other possible solutions. I think the best is that this is a conscious editorial choice. And John is framing the story of Jesus a certain way. He's putting events in certain places so that you get ideas about what's happening. And he puts the temple, he front loads it so that you know, hey, this gospel's about the temple. 
This cleansing is the main event that goes on. And he makes this somewhat, not just somewhat, he makes this explicit. So Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, probably in a mocking voice, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. That's about as explicit as it gets. Uh, This is the temple of his body that's going to die, come back to life. It's going to be a temple. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, spoiler alert, um, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So it's front-loaded to tell you that this is a gospel about the temple. Now, this goes on. Jesus then goes on to begin to actively manipulate the feasts of Israel for his benefit of his mission. So chapter 7 through 9 in John's Gospel is the Feast of Tabernacles. So Israel lives in the wilderness, they live in booths, and they get together and they live in like tents outside their houses for a period of time. Israelites still do this. Um, And uh, there are all sorts of events, I I won't go into the extent of details, but there are all sorts of like seminal events, like there's a candelabra that fills Jerusalem. And that's where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And you're like, oh not the candelabra, me. And there's ceremonies involving living water. And he says, living water will flow. There's all sorts of things that Jesus is saying and actively um, calling these festivals to himself. John chapters 10 and 11 is the Feast of Dedication. This is the rededication of the temple after some pagan events. And that's where he raises Lazarus from the dead. And so there's events going on there. And then John 13 through 17, the passages we've been in has been the Passover. Uh, Passover is the festival where the Israelites commemorate their um, rescue from slavery in Egypt. Uh, They're supposed to hang out with, um, they're supposed to basically wear their going out clothes um, and their their coats and shoes and eat standing up and in haste to to commemorate the fact that they ate and left Egypt in the middle of the night. Uh, And so they're supposed to have this feast. The other three gospels, you know, Jesus does some ceremonial stuff like this is my body, this is my blood, and he's kind of like repurposing the actual feast. Like um, there aren't, I don't know about you guys, so as an American, we have this turkey deal for Thanksgiving, and you know we commemorate the turkey, and the turkey's a sign of gratitude. It's kind of like, imagine Jesus saying, I'm the turkey, and now you're going to eat me, and it would be weird, and I think it was weird then too. Um, and so, but he, in John's gospel, there is, there is no lamb, and probably to highlight the fact that Jesus is the lamb. Um, so there's other things there. The, the point of this all, this little crash course, is that John's gospel is absolutely pregnant with expectation as we move towards the crucifixion and resurrection. What is Jesus doing with the story of Israel? And along the way, we get this great prayer in chapter 17. And to understand that a little further, I think we have to look at the Old Testament. Now, another extremely long passage that we won't read this morning, I think I'm doing you a, a disservice, but uh, is 2 Chronicles 6, which for many of you is a book you've never heard of. So... Um, 2 Chronicles 6, like I said, we're not going to read it. This is a high priestly prayer where Solomon, um, the king, one of the kings of Israel, dedicates the temple. And Solomon's prayer looks a lot like Jesus' prayer of dedication. So let's talk about Solomon for just a minute. Um, it was about 1,000 years before Christ. Um, David had a son named Solomon, and Solomon supervised the building of the original temple. Now, if you're kind of a history buff, for the record, uh, that temple was destroyed in about 587 before Christ. Then it was rebuilt about 50 years later, and then it was destroyed once and for all in 70 AD. And if you see pictures today of the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem, that's one of the final, the only remaining wall of the temple that the Romans destroyed in 70 AD. The Romans destroyed it because they were really, really mad at the Jews. So Solomon collects materials. He builds it according to extensive plan. 
and he created what was then considered a wonder of the ancient world. It was a, it was a magnificent structure, um, gold and stone and wood put together. And in the beginning, um, there's the day he dedicates it, there's thousands of animals. All Israelists gather together to worship, and then he prays a prayer to dedicate it. And I'm going to summarize parts of that prayer for you now, because I think his prayer identifies the purpose of the temple. So I've got three purposes that I think are here. First purpose that Solomon identifies is that the temple is where Israelites will go to meet with God. You're going to come to this place, and this is where you're going to meet with God. This is going to be the interface point between you and between um, our God. And so it's a house of worship, we would say. Second, and this is the bulk of his prayer, the temple is the place where people will go to make things right with one another through sacrifice. You've wronged your brother? Come to the temple. You've wronged a neighbor? Come to the temple. You've wronged God in some way? Come to the temple. And so sacrifice is the making it right of situations that are wrong. And this is the place where you will do these things. And so it's also a house of reconciliation, a house of worship and a house of reconciliation. And third, and really startling in this prayer that Solomon gives, is the temple is a place where the nations will come to meet God. Foreigners are going to hear about who our God is and what he's doing, and they're going to show up. And they're going to be heard here as well, which is, for a kind of xenophobic, inward-looking nation, is a pretty astonishing prayer to make at the dedication of this prayer. So, it's a house of worship, a house of reconciliation, and a house of mission. If we were making slogans, we'd say, meet God, make it right, Bring a friend. <laughs> Meet God, make it right, bring a friend. I think that's what Solomon's prayer tells us is the purpose of the temple. Now, what's amazing is that right after this prayer, in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, God's glory descends in power and fills the temple. The presence of the Spirit is there as, as a mark of God's approval of his presence. He's saying, yes, this is my house. And yes, we will do these things here. You will meet me, you will make things right, and you will bring the nations to me. So, um, that evidences link these passages a little further together. The Spirit descends after that prayer. John 14 through 17, pretty heavy with language of the Spirit. He's coming, he's descending, he's descending on the disciples. And so the disciples' temple link is pretty clear. Now, we've got these two purposes in mind, the temple story in John and the prayer story of 2 Chronicles 6 and 7, and I'd like us to hear Jesus' prayer for the church. Um, we're going to hear it in a slightly different way. Um, I have a recording of the Bible. Whoops, don't trip on the wire, Jeremy. Don't trip on the wire. I have a recording of the Bible called The Bible Experience, and it's the entire Bible read by... Yeah, it's on my phone, I'll get it in a second, uh, read by African-Americans, and so, uh, actors, and it's really fun, and so, but there, it's a little goofy, because there's sometimes there's little sound effects and music, and, uh, but I'm not going to put the text on the screen, what I'm going to invite you to do is to either um, just assume a posture that helps you to listen, uh, you can close your eyes, you can look at the ground, um, you can lean back and look up at the ceiling, whatever helps you is fine. I also, um, it's a large text, I... It's really hard, I don't know about you, it's hard for me to listen and not try to capture everything. You're not going to get everything. Uh, just listen for the phrases that stick out to you. And just kind of hold on to those phrases. And that's, I think that's the best you can do. And don't try to force it further. To tell you what's going to happen, Jesus is going to pray for three things. He'll pray for his relationship with the Father. 
He'll pray for his disciples, and then he prays for those who enter in later. That's kind of the, the broad picture. So um, a brief technological interlude over here. Oh, good heavens. So, so if we're unlucky, the dulcet sounds of K-pop will pop through your... So, yeah. <laughs> Son, that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you, for I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. Oh, I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. <sighs> I am coming to you now. But I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth, your word. Ah, is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them, I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then. The world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, 
I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. All right. So, there's so much to say and not a lot of time. I think what's crucial, at least for what I'm trying to communicate today, is that if we are right about the links between the temple and John's gospel, between Solomon's prayer and Jesus's prayer, then it follows that this is a kind of prayer of commissioning for us. The things the temple used to do, now we do. Where formerly people went to a building in Jerusalem to meet God, make it right, and bring their friends, now that happens with you. And that's the huge transition. So let's look at a couple brief passages. 1 Peter 2, 4 and 5. 1 Peter 2, 4 and 5. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. This is your new identity, your new role. You're a stone in the house of God. Not immobile, but mobile. Uh, Peter goes on a little further, chapter uh, 2, verses 9 and 10, to say that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Formerly outsiders, formerly not part of the people, now integrally linked to the primary mission of God in the world. And this is what Peter's telling us that we are. This is a new reality. In the Old Testament, Solomon builds a temple out of stone and wood and gold for God. In the New Testament, God builds a temple himself, and he's built it out of us. And that is a radical change in how God relates to the world. Do you want to meet God today? You kind of need to find a group of Christians. Do you want to make things right with your neighbor? Best place to do it is to find a group of Christians. Do you want to bring others to know God? You need to find a group of Christians. Not one Christian, a group of Christians. Together we're the temple. It's in community where this happens. That's where the temple is today. So I want to reflect briefly on the content of Jesus' prayer. He's praying for this new temple. He's commissioning it. And I always think it's informative to think about the things that Jesus doesn't ask for in these prayers. Here are six things Jesus doesn't ask for. Number one, Jesus doesn't ask to make us bigger. Father, give them more, pad their numbers. Pad their numbers with members from other churches. Can you imagine if Jim had stood up weeks ago and he gave some vision and said, then this year we're going to beat the Baptists. (laughs) It's not about being bigger. Number two, Jesus doesn't ask for more famous people to join the movement. Jesus, if only Caesar could become a Christian. I mean, Father, if only Jesus. Jesus doesn't pray to Jesus. Me, if only. um, Father, if only Caesar. If only 
If only we get some of the Herods, right? If only some of the royals would come to the kingdom vineyard, then we'd have it made, wouldn't we? Because we'd have famous people in our midst. Jesus doesn't ask for that. Uh, number three, Jesus does not ask for the Father to increase our skill level. Father, can you do something about Peter's singing voice? It's just terrible. Maybe that's why he's called Rocky. His voice is gravelly. Who knows? Can you, can you give us more instrumentalists, Jesus? Can you do these things? He doesn't, he doesn't pray to increase our skill level. Uh, fourth, um, Jesus doesn't ask the Father to reduce particular sins. Uh, John and James have tempers. And Jesus, when he's talking to the Father, doesn't say, and while you're at it, God, can you cause them to chill? Could you make Peter less hard-hearted? Could you make Nathaniel a little less lazy? He doesn't do that. He doesn't ask for those reductions. Fifth, Jesus doesn't ask for us to have easy lives. Father, I pray that they can rest by the beach and fish for the rest of their lives. Doesn't ask for it. It's not part of the prayer. Sixth, he doesn't ask for us to become wealthier. Doesn't want us to have more. Doesn't want us to have more money to pad our bank accounts. Make them the wealthiest church in the world to create envy among all the other people. Doesn't care about that. What does he pray for? I'm going to highlight four things. One, he prays for unity. Uh, here we go. Chapter 17, just verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. Unity. Togetherness. He prays for what I'm calling in Jesusness. The next verse, 17, 23. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. I in them and you in me. He wants us to have a property of in Jesusness. Somehow we are together in Jesus. We're not in other stuff. We're not in the world properly. We're not in our cultural movements. We're not in political spheres. We're in Jesus. That's our inness. He prays for mission. Number three, chapter 17, verse 18. As you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. You're on a mission. You're being sent somewhere. You're asked to do something. And lastly, he prays for protection from the evil one. Chapter 17, verse 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. A couple brief comments. I wrote these down this morning. I think these are all pretty low ego things. Unity is a low ego thing. You can't have an ego and be unified, high ego. In Jesusness, it's not about you. Protection, if you recognize that you need protection, that should be a kind of a low ego thing. I mean, it can go kind of both ways, I suppose. Mission, it's not about you. It's about the mission. It's taking on a new identity. Second, I was thinking about Jim's more of the same stuff that he did for us, and I think, I think, um, I think we're on board. I think if, at this moment, Jesus is on board. <laughs> Isn't that nice? Yeah, I thought that this morning. I could have, could have gone the other way, Jim. Um, <laughs> that, that what we're asking for for the Kingdom Vineyard is that God would continue to do more of the things he's done among us, more of the good things he's done among us. And I think that's a good prayer, a good prayer in line with what Jesus prays for us. Now, unity in Jesus' mission and protection from the evil one, these are the very things we need in order to be the temple together. We need purpose, we need oneness, we need power in Christ, and we need protection. Our purpose, meet God, make it right, bring a friend. 
That's our purpose. That's what we're supposed to do. Um, and I, I don't know you, I know you reasonably well. I like you. Um, I think we're doing really well at meeting God and at bringing a friend. I wonder how well we're doing at make it right. As a, as a core virtue of what it means to be temple. Let's fix relationships. Let's heal broken hearts. Oneness. This is not monotony. Oneness is not sameness. To be one is to have one heart, to be of one mind, to have each other's best interests at heart. To be one means to place our temple purpose in priority over our personal and petty desires. To be one means that we care for the weak and the poor so that we are together in something. Um, A while back, I thought that maybe a, a helpful definition of humility is that humility in church structures means we move at the speed of the slowest. I had a picture of Israel leaving Egypt and of aged and elderly people hobbling along. And I imagined what if the young Israelites said, we're just going to go on, you guys catch up later. And the attitude of humility says, no, 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 we all move together. And when we move, we move at the speed of the slowest person. And there's a humility in that because the people up front may have vision and may see, hey, look at this great goal we're going to. And it's a little too easy. This is not a critical comment of you, by the way. Um, It's a little too easy to get into the mode of like, we're going to go here no matter what and sacrifice individual people along the way because they don't quite fit. And I don't know that's helpful. Protection. The only real enemy is the spiritual one. It's the only enemy who can truly do damage to our community and our people. And so we ask with Jesus for protection from him. And then we have this in Jesusness. And I think in him, Christ supplies all that we need to accomplish our purpose, to accomplish our oneness, and to resist the evil one. He is the one who supplies our numbers. It's not our focus, it's his. He gives us our resources, he makes our connections, he provides vision. He helps us with our sin management. He guides our rebukes. He manages our restorations, and he motivates our forgivenesses. He's the one who heals our relationships, and he's the one who wants to make our relationships right. And he protects us from the evil one. What I'd like to do as we shift into a time of prayer and worship now is to invite you to call on the power of King Jesus. And in some sense, to receive his prayer for you. This is not a striving. You don't have to work to make this happen. This is, no, I I want what you've prayed for me, Jesus. I want to be a recipient of this prayer. I want your protection. I want the oneness you offer. I want to be in you like you're in the Father. And I want to have a vision for your mission. And I'd like us to have a heart to receive the commission that Jesus has placed on us to be the temple. So let's move now into a time of worship. Um, If you would like to receive Jesus in a new way, to be open to his prayer, then you can come and receive that prayer. Members of home groups will come and pray for you and uplift you in that way. Please stand, (laughs) says Jim. I will pray for you, let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for Jesus. 
that you sent him to be our image, our guide, our leader, our life itself. But Father, I myself want to receive the prayer Jesus has prayed for me. I, I want what he wants from me. I want to be in your son. I want you to glorify yourself in us, in this place. I want your reputation to be made great here. Not so that we look good, so that you look really good. And I pray for these who are here today that they also would perhaps receive that prayer in a fresh way. To be wrapped in a new way into the life that Jesus has planned for this world. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.